Holy Father, we have come to worship you and to give you thanks, to promise our lives to you again, anew, afresh. It is right that we should do so. You are a God who is worthy, infinitely more worthy of all the worship and the very best worship that we will ever be able to offer you, whether the worship of heart and lips or the worship of life, obedience and service. It is our greatest desire, O Lord, that you would grant us your presence the working of your spirit in our hearts and in our midst, that the worship that we have come to offer you might actually be the worship that we offer you in spirit and in truth, sincerely meant from beginning to end in heart, in speech, in behavior, conscious, O God, of the immense debt we owe to you for our life and our salvation. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Our first hymn, number 103, is our version of the Tadeum, one of the oldest and greatest of all Christian hymns, coming from perhaps the fourth century. It's possible it's earlier still. I remember once uh, reading uh, the account of a man who had grown up in the center of American evangelical Christianity but had never encountered the Tadeum until he went to Britain uh, as a graduate student. And there he uh, heard the hymn being sung, not this particular version probably, uh, the hymn being sung in an Anglican church. And what I remember of his description was that he said, line followed line of almost insupportable majesty, the Tadeum. Let us worship God. Be seated, please, and on to prayer and the confession of our sins. And now God's people together from their hearts. O Lord, what evil have we not done? Or if there is evil that we have not done, what evil is there that we have not spoken? If there is any that we have not spoken, what evil is there that we have not thought to do? But you, O Lord, are good. You are merciful. You saw how deep we were sunk in death, and it was your power that drained dry the well of corruption in the depths of our hearts. All that you have asked of us was to deny our own wills and accept yours. Forgive us for every failure to do so, and help us to follow you in every way and always. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Take comfort, Christian brothers and sisters. Our Holy Scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful because he has promised to hear our prayers and forgive our sins. Just because he has already seen to their punishment and their atonement in the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the sign and seal of that forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of life from sin in the sacrament of baptism this morning. I'll ask Rob and Jordan to present themselves before the church with their son, Robert. Robbie's uh, great-great-grandfather was a faithful and fruitful a Presbyterian minister. Some of you old-timers at Faith Presbyterian Church will remember that Oscar Anderson, the father of our late and much-beloved elder Ken Anderson, uh, the, was the first Christian in the Anderson family. And he became a Christian uh, listening to my grandfather uh, preach the gospel in Wisconsin in 1914, a century ago. Amazing. Uh, as it happened, of course, as you may as you may know, his 
Robbie's grandfather, uh, his great-grandfather, rather, his second uh, in line, his grandfather, I am the grandfather, his father, are likewise all um, Presbyterian ministers. That his heritage should be the Christian ministry, of course, is wonderful, uh, but still much more wonderful is that his heritage should be the Christian faith on both sides of the family, Rayburn and Bean alike. This is not happenstance, of course. I'm sure we know that. Uh, This is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not the sort of thing that um, children simply follow their parents in because of a family uh, culture. We understand that God's grace must be given and must be worked in the heart and life of any individual, any human being, who is to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and an inheritor of heaven. It is the promise of God, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, that I will show mercy to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Promises repeated again and again and again in the word of God that we are seeing fulfilled before our eyes uh, this morning. No great shakes as parents uh, in any of the generations of those uh, spiritual lines, I'm sure. But God being faithful to his word and his promise and taking uh, a parent's little for a lot. It's ours today to rejoice in that promise. We have so many reasons in this congregation to rejoice uh, in that promise that God has pledged himself to our children as well as to ourselves, and for those of us who are parents, uh, to renew our consecration to this uh, sacred stewardship, to raise our children not simply to be Christians, wonderful as that is, but to be the kind of Christians who will consider it their most sacred obligation to so impart the faith to their children that their children will in turn be the sort of Christians who will impart it the faith to their children in turn. Um, It is one of the most beautiful things I think the church ever sees when the generations gather at a Christian baptism to know that among the cloud of witnesses are so many relatives. Many of us in the congregation have had the experience, the pleasure and the privilege I hope that a great many more of you, as the days, weeks, months, and years pass, will have the privilege and the pleasure that is mine this morning. Beloved, the sacrament of baptism is of divine ordinance. God, our Father, who has redeemed us by the sacrifice of Christ, is also the God and Father of our children. They belong with us who believe to the membership of the church through the covenant made in Christ And confirmed to us by God in this sacrament, which is a sign and seal of our cleansing, of our engrafting into Christ, and of our welcome in the household of God. Our Lord Jesus said, Permit the little children to come to me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, he who does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, Luke says as a nursing infant, he shall not receive it, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. St. Paul also declared that the children of believers are to be numbered with the holy people of God. 
Robin Jordan, do you believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And do you confess Jesus Christ, God's Son, as Lord and Savior? We do. Do you heartily believe God's covenant promise to be your God and the God of your children and thus present your child for holy baptism as a sign and seal of his reception into the covenant family of God? Do you promise with the help of God to bring him up in the nurture and discipline of the Lord, to pray with him and for him, to make every effort so to order your own lives that you will not cause this little one to stumble? And do you promise to encourage him as soon as he is able to comprehend its significance, to acknowledge personally his own faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, become an active member of Christ's church, serving God faithfully in its fellowship? We do. Our prayer is the hymn that you have inserted in your order of service uh, on the one side, This Lamb, Good Shepherd. Stand to sing. Be seated, please.
Robert Stout Rayburn II, child of the covenant, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Now with the sign and seal of your cleansing and salvation and that of Robbie's, your tithes and offerings. Gloria Patri.
Joshua chapter 14, the entirety of the chapter, just 15 verses. I need to uh, change the title of the sermon, however, from what appears in your bulletin this morning. Nothing wrong with that title. Of course, uh, Caleb was a man of active faith. But as I worked over the text, it seemed to me I ought to emphasize a somewhat different feature of Caleb's life history. So the sermon's new title is 85 Years a Christian Warrior. We've been away from Joshua for three weeks, so let me remind you where we are. With chapter 13, we began the third of the four major sections of the book. This is the section devoted to the distribution or the allotment of the land. Israel had conquered Canaan. Now it was time to take possession of it. But there would be no rush to claim the best spots as the land rush in Oklahoma in 1889. The land was instead to be distributed by lot among the various tribes with their clans and families. The report of the allotment began with the land in the Transjordan that had to be divided up among the two and a half tribes that were to settle there. Chapter 14 begins the report of the allotment of the land to the remaining nine and a half tribes whose inheritance would be in Canaan itself. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. The fact that Eleazar the high priest was instrumental in the distribution of the land indicates, again, that the inheritance of the land was fraught with spiritual and religious significance. This is not simply a business transaction, a legal procedure. This is, as we said last time, virtually the reading of God's will. The land was coming to the Israelites as their inheritance of their heavenly father. No wonder a minister should be in charge. Ministers speak and act for God. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. The fact that it was by lot did not mean that it was by chance. For an Israelite, this indicated that each particular clan or family's portion or allotment was by the will of God himself, who, of course, oversaw the casting of lots. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and a half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. The fact that the tribe of Levi was not to be given an inheritance of land is stated repeatedly in this material. It's obviously a point of some importance, and we will return to it uh, subsequently. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, And no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. In this way, it is explained why, though the Levites received no inheritance, a Levi, after all, being one of the twelve tribes of Israel, um, Joseph had become two tribes, the descendants of his two sons, which he had in Egypt, Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, but in this way, the tribal territory still numbered 12, 
though the number of tribes, by actual account, was now 13. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. Now, since Judah's wonderful spiritual rebirth and the great promise that the coming king would be a descendant of Judah, all of that history in the closing chapters of the book of Genesis, Judah had become Israel's first tribe, first among equals, if you will. And uh, it is not surprising, therefore, that the account of Judah's allotment is first, even though he was not the firstborn of the twelve sons, uh, that the amount of land given to Judah was the largest of any of the tribes, and that the account of Judah's allotment takes the longest space, extending from 1406 all the way to 1563. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. Here is, here is Caleb reminding Joshua of history that Joshua, of course, was well acquainted with. It's an interesting question. How much did Joshua and Caleb have to do with one another in the years that uh, had elapsed from the event at Kadesh Barnea uh, to these days? Uh, were they friends? Did, they, did their families uh, get together for Christmas? Did they, did they have some sort of connection as the two faithful spies uh, out of the twelve who had been sent by Moses into Canaan to reconnoiter the land uh, those many years ago. But Caleb begins by saying, you know what I'm about to tell you. They shared a history. And Moses swore on that day, saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has sent me alive, or has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. Um, verses 7 through 9 review the events reported in Numbers 13 and 14, how the ten spies had been Ten of the twelve overawed by the size and fortification of Canaan cities and their reputation for military prowess. But how Joshua and Caleb had urged Israel to no avail, as it turned out, to trust the Lord and invade the land nonetheless. Moses' promise to Caleb is found in Numbers 14.24, and important as it was, it is found again in Deuteronomy 1.36. Now this is the first indication that it had taken Israel some five years uh, to subdue the land of Canaan, a longer period of time than we might have gathered from the account of the battles by which Canaan was uh, uh, conquered. 
in the chapters of Joshua so far. But um, it has been now 45 years since uh, Israel uh, uh, at Kadesh Barnea uh, refused to enter the land. And it was 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. So five of those years were spent after Israel's entrance into the promised land. Or, in fact, it might have been seven years, depending on whether or not the first two years of Israel's time in the wilderness are to be counted in the 40 years they spent in the wilderness, or whether, in fact, the total years from the Passover to the entrance into the promised land were 42. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for coming and going. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. That is, Caleb wanted the very land whose inhabitants had so intimidated his fellow spies and Israel 45 years before. He would drive out the Anakites himself, as he had urged the Israelites to do at Kadesh Barnea long before. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Kiriath Arba, literally the city of Arba or Arba town, uh, was where Abraham's wife Sarah had died some centuries before, as you read in Genesis 23:2. So it was a town with some significance to a loyal Israelite. Our Heavenly Father, we have before us now a man who obviously is being commended to us as an example. Help us to understand in what respect. And then, O oh God, give us grace to follow him, to follow in his steps. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. There is a feature of Christian experience that is discussed at length by the masters of the Christian life, but surprisingly is not directly addressed in the Bible. Believe me, I have looked for it for many years, looked hard to find it taught in some way, somehow, in some place. But so far, I have come up empty, unless we might find a reference to it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, where we read of the sins that so easily beset us, or the sins that cling so closely to us. But perhaps that statement is a reference to our sin in general. I know this is a universal feature of Christian experience, both because those who through the ages have written most helpfully on the Christian life almost invariably refer to it, but also because I have found it uh, to be the case in my own life and also in yours. I'm speaking of what is typically referred to as the besetting sin. The Puritans also called it the bosom sin or the predominant sin. 
in every Christian life, in its own way, in every human life. There is a certain sin or a certain two sins that in particular bedevil one's life, trouble one's conscience, that stand in the way of the proper development of one's character and behavior, and that are the focus of the spiritual warfare. In different lives, they will be different sins, but every life has its besetting sin. In one life, it might be anger. In another, fear. In another, sexual lust of whatever kind. In another, drink or drugs. In another, food. In another, raging pride, that is, pride above the ordinary measure of pride that besets us all. In another, laziness and the love of ease. In another, the love of money. In another, the almost pathological indifference to others. In still another, a peevish, thin skin. And on and on. I'm quite sure that as I read out this list of sins, you have already identified yours, whether it is in my list or not. I don't mean to suggest that we aren't fully aware of many sins in our lives, our behavior, in our hearts, but still there is that one sin that rises above them all. Samuel Rutherford, saintly as he was, admirable a life as he lived, struggled with a flaming temper all his life. So did John Calvin. On his deathbed, Calvin was constrained to confess the one sin he confessed on his deathbed that he had never really tamed what he called the wild beast of his wrath. And he asked forgiveness for that chronic failure. Besetting sins can even change over time. But I've never met a Christian without one. An old man may no longer struggle with lust, but he may find that he is constantly and powerfully tempted to be a tiresome crab to those around him. But whatever the particular sin in any person's life, it is a fact that has been often noted by spiritual men and spiritual women that when Christians read the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25, when they hear that great Christian say that the very thing that he wants to do, he does not do. And the very thing he knows that he should not do, that is the very thing that he does. I say when Christians read the great apostle saying, uh, speaking of his depressing and discouraging struggle, they do not think of sin in general. They think of sin in particular. They think of a particular sin. They know precisely what Paul is talking about. They know from personal experience the same frustration he expresses when he describes himself as a bond slave of sin. Because they have experienced that same measure of defeat and that depression and that frustration in the long struggle with a particular sin. This is not, by the way, a problem peculiar to Christians. Unbelievers likewise have their their besetting sin. There are things morally considered that they do better at, that they find easier to manage, and there are ways in which they perform poorly time and time and time again. Indeed, Charles Simeon supposed that in the case of converts, people who became Christians in the middle of life, 
A Christian's besetting sin will often, if not usually, be the same besetting sin he had before he became a Christian. Besetting sins are the sins rooted in our makeup, in our personality, in our life experience. And they are the more intractable for that reason. I thought a great deal about besetting sins over the course of my ministry, not least because of the struggle with my own, but as well because of your struggles with yours. And as a result, my antenna are always up to pick up this theme whenever it surfaces in the spiritual writers as I read them. Here is James Fraser of Bray, the Scottish covenanter of the 17th century. I find it with me as with the Israelites that there were some nations that they could not drive out. So I may say that there are some strong evils that I cannot get mastered at all and which continually afflict me and discourage me. The ever-practical English Puritan Thomas Brooks, speaking of what he called these darling sins, wrote that they are the principal reason, he thinks, why many Christians struggle with the assurance of salvation. If we read in Revelation that those who overcome will inherit eternal life, and we are regularly being overwhelmed and defeated in this particular area of our lives, does that mean we're not genuine Christians, but only a pale imitation of the real thing? So in his great work, Heaven on Earth, Brooks provides his readers, as Puritans would, with six motives and five means by which to put their besetting sins to death. Brooks reminds us that for most of us, our battle with our besetting sin is the spiritual warfare in our lives. It is where the real conflict is being waged to the extent that it is being waged at all. We all know that if we are defeated here, then we are still defeated. And if we are victorious here, we have prevailed indeed. As Brooks reminds us, when Goliath was slain, the rest of the Philistines fled. I mentioned Charles Simeon earlier. He was a great man who exercised a mighty and wonderful influence over the entire world through his 50-year-long ministry at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. So many of the great pioneer missionaries of the early 19th century sat at Simeon's feet during their studies at Cambridge. But he had a besetting sin that he struggled against all his life. He was insecure for a variety of reasons, perhaps. He was long and angular. He was not a handsome man. People made fun of him. He had an odd personality in some respects. But he was insecure. And as insecure people sometimes are, he was hypersensitive. And like many hypersensitive people, he was far too easily offended, far too easily angered, and far too often critical of others. He took note of every real or imagined slight. And believe me, if you take note of every real or imagined slight, you're going to find lots of slights to take note of. He was in that way English evangelicalism's Jerome, though he was never as prickly as Jerome. That would be hard to do. But it was a failing that he battled all his life. One piece of great wisdom that Simeon shared out of his struggle with his besetting sin was the need to, as he put it, 
Lean on the side opposite your constitutional bias. You incline a certain way. Push hard in the opposite direction. So in his diary, we find him instructing himself, stop talking about myself. He needed to forget himself and concentrate on others, something he was not by disposition inclined to do. Simeon reminds us that some of the most important lessons we ever learn are the lessons taught us by our besetting sins, the sins that simply won't go away, the sins that defeat us again and again. Here is John Flavel, another practical person, a practical Puritan, I should have said. The Lord makes excellent uses of even your infirmities and failings to do you good and makes them turn to your unexpected advantage. For by these defects, he hides pride from your eyes. He beats you out of your self-dependence. He makes you to admire the riches of free grace. He makes you to long more ardently for heaven and entertain sweeter thoughts of death. And doth not the Lord then make blessed fruit to spring up from such a bitter root? Oh, the blessed chemistry of heaven to extract such mercies out of such miseries. Well, if sin can teach us such lessons in general, it is our besetting sin that drives the lesson home to the heart and inscribes it on the wall of the soul. A fundamental rule of the instruction of the heart in spiritual things is generalia non pungent. Generalities don't penetrate. It isn't the idea of sin. It isn't sin in general that penetrates the conscience. Conscience. It is a sin. It is the sin. It is that thing we said or we did or we failed to do over and over and over again that frightens us, that casts us into despair about our spiritual lives, that makes us wonder if we're Christians at all that makes us long for a pure heart and a clean life more than for life itself. Perhaps the most poignant account of a Christian life troubled by a besetting sin is provided by Thomas Boston, the great 18th century Scott divine, in his immortal memoir. He mentions the sin repeatedly throughout his narrative without ever specifically identifying it. He refers to it as his trial. The temptation that had often worsted me. He speaks of my cross, of that particular sin. The certain temptation which often has been ruining to me. And so on. And still at the end of the great man's, that holy man's life, looking back over his life, it is his besetting sin, the one thing left that threatens to shake his evidences for heaven. Lastly, as to that particular matter which it has pleased my God to make the special continued trial of the most part of my life, which has been the most exquisite one to me, and has often threatened to baffle all my evidences for heaven as being the one thing lacking, I can say, one, 
I desire to be a weaned child in it, to get above it and to quit it for the Lord and to take Christ in its room instead. Two, I have sometimes got above it from spiritual principles, motives, and ends. Three, whereas it has often got the mastery over me and held me down like a giant on a little child or a mountain on a worm, I am heartily ashamed thereof before the Lord. And that is one of the main things which have made the course of my past life so notably loathsome to me. And thus it hath contributed to empty me, shake me out of myself, and drive me to Christ. For notwithstanding all my unbecoming quarreling with the Lord on this head, I would lie against my own soul if I should deny that I would rather have a cross of his choosing for me than a crown of my own choosing for myself. And finally, I love God in Christ above it, being content to quit it for him, and could be satisfied in the enjoyment of God without it, but by no means with it without him. If a man like Thomas Boston struggled with a besetting sin his entire life, a godlier man you will not find, who are you to, and I to imagine that we will not? If God uses this, a sin, to teach a man such as Boston to make war on his sins, to see his life as perpetual spiritual combat, to trust all the more in divine grace and in the righteousness of Christ and to long for heaven and for a sinless heart, then surely you and I are not likely to learn those greatest of all lessons in some simpler, more painless way. Indeed, the more I have thought about besetting sins, this feature of the Christian life, the more I've come to see how merciful and how kind the Lord is to concentrate the spiritual warfare for us in this way. After all, we are, all of us, comprehensively sinners. We break all the commandments of God all the time by failures of commission and still much more by failures of omission. We are utter moral failures when judged by the standards of God's holiness, his revealed will, and the example of Jesus Christ. He could, God could, if he chose to, reveal to us the full measure of our sin and sinfulness. He could show us every single day how far short we fall in each and every moral respect. But if he did, we would be so demoralized and so devastated and so depressed and so despondent and we would feel so hopeless and so helpless that we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning, much less live any semblance of a Christian life. We could not bear it if we saw what God sees all the time as he looks into our hearts and observes our lives. And so, in fatherly compassion and wisdom, he bleeds out to us slowly and in only a small measure a sense of our sinfulness. Besetting sins concentrate the lessons of sin and grace in one spot, in respect to one dimension of our lives. They enable us to face the reality of sin without our being overwhelmed by it. It's bad enough. There is one or two. But with one, we're still able to function 
still able to live and grow as Christians, still able to experience the joy of salvation. I'm not sure if there were 10 or 12, we would be able to carry on in the life of faith and hope and love. So there you have it. The reality of the besetting sin, the fact of it, and perhaps one reason why God has ordered our lives in this way. But what does all of that have to do with Caleb? Just this. When Caleb came to Joshua to request his portion of the land, he and Joshua were the only two who were allowed to choose a specific piece of real estate. He was 85 years of age. He was an old man. Clearly the narrator regards Caleb as the embodiment of the faithful and obedient life to which all Israel must aspire. One scholar refers to him as the poster boy, the exemplar of covenantal faith and life. In other words, Caleb's inheritance, the account of it here, is not simply a detail of the allotment of the tribe of Judah, not simply to demonstrate that that particular promise that had been made to Caleb was eventually fulfilled. He is set before us as a lesson for every Israelite and every Christian to emulate or a man, an example to emulate. Three times in this short passage, we read that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Caleb was a sinner, like all the rest of us are sinners, and yet he wholly followed the Lord. Caleb himself says it, Moses said it, and now the narrator says it at the end of the chapter. When something is repeated like that, it's being emphasized. It's being called to our attention. And what is the particular way in which Caleb wholly followed the Lord? Well, perhaps a great many things might have been said about this man, but here the point is clearly his perseverance in faith and in spiritual warfare. He was 40 at Kadesh Barnea when the spies brought back their report. He was ready to take on the Canaanites then, no matter their fearsome reputation. He is 85 years old now, and he's ready to take on the Canaanites still. He had enemies he was ready to face and confront throughout his adult life. And now an old man, he is as ready as he ever was to confront them once again. The significance of Caleb as an exemplar of faith is then further emphasized by the fact that the account of the allotment of land to Caleb and Joshua form an inclusio. Caleb's inheritance here, Joshua's at the end of the entire section. A point is being made. Both men exemplify the spiritual metal that is required of all the people of God. They believed the word of God. They acted on that word with courage and with conviction. And they remained faithful to that word year after year after year in spite of keen disappointments and frustrations, and, in some respects, in spite of defeats. And here, at the end of their lives, despite the long gap between promise and fulfillment, Caleb is found ready to act on that word of God still once again. Now, we've made a point many times of the fact that we are taught in the Bible to regard the narrative of the conquest of Canaan as instruction in the way of faith and 
the believing life. Canaan is heaven. And getting to heaven is what the Christian life is all about. Getting there ourselves and helping others to get there as well. Caleb had fought the good fight 45 years before at Kadesh Barnea. He virtually alone had argued for Israel's invasion of Canaan then and there. He was ready to do battle with the Canaanites, no matter their reputation. He had, in some respects, been defeated there and had had to wait 40 more years before the opportunity came to take Canaan again, this time by storm. Though no doubt Caleb had proved his mettle, his faithfulness in battle against Sihon and Og, the two kings Israel had defeated east of the Jordan. He had strapped on his sword when Israel finally crossed into the promised land and no doubt had been in some position, some prominent position of command during the middle many battles that had taken place over the last five or seven years as Israel reduced Canaan's military strength to the small pockets of ineffective resistance that still remained. When Christians take on their sins, when they strive to put them to death, particularly the sins that trouble them the most, their most implacable enemies, when they refuse to allow even repeated defeats to unnerve them or unman them, they are taking Canaan. Caleb was a man who had been taking Canaan his entire life. And here he is at the very end, still wanting to take that last piece of it that was going to belong to him and to his family. He was as confident of the word of God, of the faithfulness of God, of the power of God at 85 as he had been at 40 and as ready to act on that confidence. Five times in this short passage, Caleb refers to what the Lord had promised him. His was a faith that would not be deterred by the long years of battle. In fact, it seems as if Caleb were intentionally asking for the land still occupied by the most powerful enemy, for the portion of Canaan that would seem to others to be the most difficult to subdue and to possess. It was his choice to ask for Hebron. He had the pick of Judah's territory, and he chose the place where the Anakim lived, or what was left of them. It is as if Caleb were saying to Joshua, you remember the sneers that you and I heard that day when the twelve, the ten spies brought the majority report? Remember all that whimpering about large fortified cities and large swaggering Anakim? And how all they could say for days was, we are not able. Well, that's exactly why I want this inheritance. There are fortified cities and real live Anakim. Precisely what caused Israel to shrink from the task is what gave Caleb the passion to assume it. What is it that causes you to cower in your Christian life? Where are your Anakim? Where is found the most impregnable fortress of worldly power in your heart and your life? Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. It's your besetting sin. It is the besetting sin that has reduced so many Christian 
lives, especially those who've been Christians for years and years, to something less than they ought to be. The besetting sin that has so often defeated us, wearied us in the spiritual battle, sent us to the sidelines. We're living, but we're not doing much fighting. We're still confessing our faith and sincerely, but we're not taking new ground. We're not possessing new territory. We're not volunteering to do battle with the enemies that are still left in our lives. We've lost heart. We've grown tired. And to far too great a degree, things are pretty much the same in our lives as they were some years ago. Not nearly as different as they ought to be and might have been. Heaven is not taken that way. At least it shouldn't be taken that way. As Israel will learn to its shame and heartbreak, a generation that takes the land will be followed by another generation that will bravely defend it against all enemies. Only if that first generation fights to the end of the day and sets an example for its children of Caleb-like perseverance in the spiritual warfare. Alas, all of Israel did not follow Caleb's example, which makes this text even more strikingly important for us to heed. Just as they had not followed his advice 40 years before, they will not follow his example now. Judges will tell the sad, uh, the sad story of the lethal influence upon Israel's spiritual life exercised by the Canaanites who were never dislodged and never dispossessed as Caleb dispossessed those who were left in the vicinity of Hebron. Caleb had the warrior spirit. We will read in chapter 17, however, of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh who, when the, their allotment was first announced, complained that they didn't get enough land. And they didn't want to live in the hill country. They'd rather be in the valley. When Joshua told them, well, to take more of the land from the Canaanites who still lived on the flat, they complained about the military strength of those Canaanite people. These were the men who had fought the battles by which Israel had conquered the promised land, but they hadn't Caleb's enduring faith in the promise of God and hadn't his indomitable spirit, his readiness to take on the enemy. One after another, again and again. And judges will tell us what became of Ephraim and Manasseh, who felt they had fought long enough. Here's the question that the text before us poses to you and me. Are we going to possess our possessions? We have an enemy standing in the way. It's the same enemy we've been fighting for a long time. He's not easily going to be beaten. We'll probably be dealing with him to the end of our lives. His spirit isn't broken. He's not wearied. Will we do battle again and again? Or will we be content with the territory we have so far acquired? You and I are not Caleb in the sense that we don't have a particular piece of real estate to capture. But we are Caleb in the sense that an old enemy is yet to be fully subdued and eliminated and dispossessed in our hearts and lives. You and I know very well what that enemy is. We can't claim we don't know where the Hebron is in our life. May we have the spirit of Caleb to the end of our lives, that confidence in the promise of God, in the blessing of God. 
the determination to wholly follow the Lord. More than you know, it is this question, whether you will be a Caleb when you are still 85 years of age, that will tell the tale of your Christian life and perhaps that of your children as well. There's only one way to be Caleb, to be one all your life. Never give up, never give in, no matter the discouragement, you will prevail. Amen. Our final hymn is the reverse of the page with the hymn that we sang at the baptism, this new one from Gideon Townen. We've gone from the 4th century to the 21st in our singing this morning, Stand to Sing.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.